Welcome to Edge of Sports, the podcast. I'm Dave Zirin. We have so much to talk about this week because Missouri football players intervened into business as usual in the sports world and turned this into a week better defined as historic. We have a ton of guests this week. First, let's go to somebody you may have heard of, Grammy winner, Oscar winner, John Legend. Hope all the world is in our generations. It's all left up to us to change this present situation. John, Missouri. The football players said they were not down for taking the field unless the school president got got gone. And I just wanted to ask you, as somebody who I know pays attention to these social justice type issues, what was your reaction when you heard about this story? I was really stunned by the power that the football players were willing to wield. And I guess I always knew that if the players uh, in college football, particularly because of the amount of money that college football brings in and the importance of college football to campus life for these big-time programs, I always knew that they had a lot of power, but I never thought they would harness it for something like this. And, uh, I was pretty thrilled by the possibilities. The idea that students could come together, that particularly because of the power of college football, that players could come together and wield their power in this way, it, it had my mind thinking of all the ways that, right. that, that um, college football players could, uh, could come together to, to bring about change because they really have so much influence, uh, really uh, disproportionate influence in this particular sphere. You know, who knows what they could come together to do in the future. And, uh, man, this shows you the power of just saying, we're not going to show up today. We're not going to show up to practice. We're not going to show up to this game. We know how valuable we are to this institution, and we need to be treated as such. Our generation is all left up to us. Our generation, let's do just what we must. Straighten it out. Straighten it out. Gotta straighten it out. We're going to hear more from John Legend later in the show. But first, I want to turn to our in-studio guest. We've got Paul Hewitt, who coached Georgia Tech in the NCAA Finals a decade ago. Uh, And we're going to talk to Paul about what the NCAA looks like from the inside. And we're going to talk to Christian Dotson Pearson, Prof. CDP, about the effect of what happened at Missouri on the world of higher education. The news of the last week is why we decided to do this show in the first place. This show is about the collision of sports and politics. And rarely, not just in recent times, but in history, have you seen that collision happen more dramatically than what took place at Missouri with the football team going on strike and refusing to play unless Tim Wolf, the president of the school, stepped down. What we saw here were the chickens coming home to roost. Not just the chickens, but the billion dollar golden goose of college sports coming home to roost. To take a step back, I'm guessing people know the story, but there have been incidents going on for years at Missouri about racism, racist harassment of students, but also about homophobia, also about gender violence. A lot of these stories and a lot of dissatisfaction among the student body, feeling like they're marginalized and feeling like 
like they're not being heard. But the centrality of that anger really was the black student body at Missouri. Then you had Jonathan Butler, a grad student at Missouri, 25 years old, go on a hunger strike. And this was on October 23rd. And he said he would not eat until school president Tim Wolf stepped down. Now, several members of the football team went and visited with Jonathan Butler. They spoke to him and they came back to their coach, Gary Pinkle, as he described later, with t- they, they had tears in their eyes. And they said they felt like they could no longer be silent. They felt like they could no longer be on the sideline. And they effectively went on strike. It started Saturday night with the announcement that the black and brown players on that team would not play next week against BYU. And then that extended to the entire team. Team, and a photo that went from Gary Pinkle's own Twitter account of everybody standing together. And they quoted Martin Luther King. They said, injustice somewhere is a threat to justice everywhere. And this is an utterly incredible story. This is history uh, writ large. And I think what, why I said that this is the chickens coming home to roost or the golden goose coming home to roost is that Missouri is not exceptional in this regard. But Tim Wolf made sure that football was at the economic, psychological, and hell, you might even want to say religious center of the campus. I mean, Tim Wolf said he was going to cut health care, he was going to cut academic programs, but he was going to give $72 million to refurbish the football stadium. It was football, 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 because he said, we are in the Southeastern Conference and we have to start acting like the Southeastern Conference. Well, guess what? For a lot of students, that just was not okay. But what it did was it put the football players in a prime position to not just enact change, but actually topple a school president. Uh, Tim Wolf makes $459,000 a year or at least he did. If the team did not play this weekend against BYU, the school would have forfeited $1 million just that week alone. So the football players, they made this decision to not play until Jonathan Butler was done with his hunger strike and until Tim Wolf stepped down. And when they made that step, it wasn't just that they exerted their economic power. It was that the story then went not just national, but global. All of a sudden, masses of people who had no idea what was happening at Missouri knew what was happening. The sleeping giant had woken up. And it's a remarkable story, and it's a story that needs to be told again and again. And it's one that I think is going to have a ripple effect across the college landscape. And, of course, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. It came just a couple of years after the Northwestern football players said that they wanted to organize a union. It comes two years after the Grambling football players said they would not play unless they felt like they had safe working conditions. So what you're starting to see is a realization among NCAA athletes of their own power in this multi-billion dollar business. And the last point I want to make before I bring on Paul Hewitt is I think it's also so important as we talk about this as a football story. And don't get me wrong. It's great that Mike and Mike on ESPN are talking about the football strike. It's great that this has wall-to-wall coverage for all the people who only read the sports page but don't read the front page. That's fantastic. But at the same time, what that can also lead is an overemphasis on what the football players did. And we have to realize that if it wasn't for the student organizing, if it wasn't for Jonathan Butler, if it wasn't for a largely female-led movement on campus that connected issues of race and of gender and of homophobia and fighting these things, uh, fighting the pernicious oppression that people felt like took, took place on that campus, if it wasn't for that, then you don't see the football players stand up. I think you got to look at it like a stool. You got the students, you got the football players, the student athletes, you got the faculty who was willing to stand with them, and because of that, the students 
stool was able to hold, and you saw a new blueprint for exercising power on a college campus. Now, to talk about this, I've got somebody here who's got much more familiarity than I do about how this works from the inside out. Georgia Tech coach, George Mason University coach, a man who coached in the NCAA finals. It does not get bigger than that. His name is Paul Hewitt. Paul, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing well, Dave. How are you doing? I'm great. It's great to have you here on this day of all days. First and foremost, I just love your reaction when you heard about what took place at Missouri. I mean, it goes without saying, it got my attention big time. You know, I, I can't remember the last time uh, uh, or if ever uh, a group of student athletes organized like this and threatened to take away such a big moneymaker. Um, and I will say I was really curious and I was not sure it would get to this point. I thought it was going to be one of these deals where it garnered a lot of national attention. But eventually, when push came to shoves, the students would, would get out on the field and practice and play because that's what they love to do. They, they love to compete. They love to play in spite of what you might want, what people may say in terms of how they are treated. I, I think at the end of the day, they have a passion for their game. Um, when Tim Wolf stepped down, the first thing that flashed in my head was like, you know, money talks. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the threat of losing $1 million in terms of the penalty they would have to pay BYU for, for forfeiting the game. Not to mention the gate receipts, the parking receipts, concessions, all those things probably mounted up. And somebody went to Tim Wolf and said, listen, you know, you may not have done anything wrong. You may have done. Who knows? Because we'll get to the bottom of everything. We'll see what he did and what he didn't do. But the bottom line was the money that was on the line. They said, look, you've got to step down to make sure this boycott doesn't go over. Here's audio from the press conference of Missouri football coach Gary Pinkle standing with his players in their decision to not play until Tim Wolf stepped down. I got involved um, uh, because I support my players and a young man's life was on the line. And basically that's, that's what it came down to. My support of my players had nothing to do with anyone losing their job. Uh, with something like this, you know, football uh, became secondary. There's absolutely nothing normal about this whole situation. I've been, I've been a head coach 25 years and been a, co- and been a coach for 39 years. And uh, this, this isn't in, in uh, you know, football 101. We went back and forth and I kept asking them, is it the right thing to do? I mean, should you wait? And, and so on and so forth. And, and they, I mean, I'm talking to guys that have tears in their eye and they're crying. And they asked me if I'd support them. And I said I would. I didn't look at consequences. That wasn't about it at the time. It was about helping my players and supporting my players when they needed me. And I did the right thing and I would do it again. He had no choice. What was your reaction? It was same. You have no choice. If you have the relationship you say you have with your players, you're going to side with them before anybody else. This is the same coach who had Michael Sam come out to him, and that team embraced him, uh, being the first openly gay football player who, who went into the NFL draft. So, I mean, that tells you the type of relationship he has. So he had no choice. Again, from a relationship standpoint and recruiting standpoint, he did absolutely the right thing. Don't you think, though, there is a kind of coach out there who would try to bully them into playing that, in that, that context? That coach will lose his team. Okay. You have no choice for two reasons. One, the relationship you have with the players. And two, let's get right down to it, the lifeblood of any college program is recruiting. And if right. you go out and make a stand against something your players want, especially something as explosive, this issue, in terms of race relations, and I, I think I read a stat, 42 of the 65 scholarship players were black, African-American. Yeah, uh, let me lay that out real quick, because this is one of the things I should have said earlier, actually, that made this so powerful, uh, is that 7% of the student body is African-American, which is pretty commensurate for state colleges around the country. It's, it's very low. Yet 69% of the football players are African-American. So there's a social power there, yeah. which on the, on the campus 
campus as a whole, um, you could say that it was easy for Tim Wolf to marginalize these concerns because he could just say, well, it's a small group of students. But when it's the football players, you're now talking about a majoritarian view on the team. I wanted to ask you this, too, because uh, someone asked me today if I thought Gary Pinkle's job might be in trouble from boosters who did not like the fact that he took this stand. And make no mistake about it, he's been apparently deluged with hate mail for standing with the players. So my first question to you is, what role do boosters play if they're angry at a political decision that the coach makes? That's the first question. And the second question is, do you think Gary Pinkle, though, can go into the living room of a top high school player and say, make no mistake about it, I proved in practice that I will have your kids back? Absolutely. And that's a, that goes back to my point, but he had no choice, A, because of the relationship he has with his players, and B, because of recruiting. Again, that's the lifeblood of any college program. you got to keep bringing good players in. Can boosters conceivably topple if a coach you win for games, their politics? If you win games, they leave you alone. You look at what went on in this town, Washington, D.C., back in the, the late 70s, early 80s with John Thompson. He took some very courageous and controversial stands. And because he was able to win and because he continued to win, he was able to stave off a, a lot of the, you know a lot of people who might have been angry. So, you know, a, a college coach told me one time long ago, and I don't want to make give you the impression that everybody's out there cheating because I happen to think most of the college coaches are the right way. But they will fire you a lot quicker for losing than they will for cheating. Mm. <laughs> okay. I, I want to tell you, a gutter economy story, and I want to get your reaction to it because it's all rooted in Missouri. This doesn't involve anybody on the football team right now because this case goes back to 2009. But there was a woman named Sasha Menu Corey. She was a swimmer at Missouri. Uh, she accused a member of the football team of sexual assault, of rape, and the school did not investigate it. And she took her own life two years later. And this was something that ESPN has uncovered documents that show that the school did not follow up on it. And that's one of the reasons why I think what happened at Missouri was so historic, because gender violence was one of the things that the the women leadership of this movement and that Jonathan Butler talked about and the school's slow response to it. And so to have the football team involved in saying we need a better campus culture is really important because I feel like that's part of the gutter economy I talk about. Like, okay, you know, maybe a rape happened, maybe it didn't. But guess what? We're not going to investigate it because you're the football players and you live in this rare air. See, I, I think that's where we, we get off track and we, and we really do the, the issue a disservice because this is a bit, much bigger issue than football players or basketball players. You know, yeah. a few years ago, I remember reading a story about these, these fraternity members at Yale walking around campus yelling, no means yes, no means yes, and basically right. advocating rape. Right. And so, if, you know, the first thing, and unfortunately, because it's the world I'm in, I was at Georgia Tech at the time, I thought if some of my players were walking around campus saying that every news truck in the country or in the area would be here right now, and it was covered at Yale. Don't get me wrong. But again, I, I think the issue, the, the thing that Tim Wolf ran into is so many times people who don't live in the shoes of an African-American student or a woman, they're desensitized to it. They say, hey, get over it. I, I'll tell you one story. I went to a very good school, and I love my experience at St. John Fisher. One time I'm, I'm refereeing an intramural basketball game, and I made a call, and there was a pack of white guys that were standing, and somebody used the N-word, yelled at me, and I lost it. I went after the mm-hmm. guy. And wow. one of my very good friends said, hey, man, just relax. He didn't mean anything by it. You know, it's like, wait a minute. You don't understand how, how that word can hit you. And my point is I think uh, Wolf, I don't know him, but he's probably desensitized to it. Like, just relax. You, nobody got hurt. Nobody got their, their bones broken. Nobody's in the hospital. We'll, you know, just move on and it'll, it'll go away instead of addressing the issue head on. Right. Instead of addressing it. And so 
again, I think we do such a disservice to these issues when we try to put it in a sports context as opposed to, you know, look at it from a societal standpoint and let's let's really make some changes. And the positive thing that will come out of this new president, whoever comes into Missouri, is they know now when something like this comes up, we better deal with it or it could cost me my job. I'm with you. No, the positive of looking at this from a sports perspective is that it gives you a lens to connect with all kinds of people who wouldn't care about it otherwise. Right. The negative is that so often in sports media and journalism, it then ends at sports. So it becomes a sports conversation. I've heard so many conversations about why did the football players do this when I think the conversation should be why did the football players connect with a mood that and movement that already existed on campus. I want to bring in uh, Professor CDP here, Christian Dotson Pearson. Uh, I know you're at Howard, which is not exactly a football factory right. in any respect. So, from, But I wanted to ask you from the perspective of, first of all, of higher ed, what your reaction was to everything that happened at Missouri. Were you shocked? Were you surprised? Or did you feel like the, the seeds of this were planted? I feel like seeds have been planted and the football team joining was like the tipping point. Um, when you look at the financial implications, because they may lose money if they didn't play, that was one part of it. But journalists were focused on just the black athletes and not the whole problem. And so because they focused on the fact that here's the football team, they threatened not to play, they forgot every other thing that led up to them deciding not to play. And I think that's part of the issue. The lens has to be far bigger than just sports and that financial impact. It needs to be, okay, what happened? Why did it start? How did we get here? Why did the team decide to come along and then have their voices heard? Mm -hmm. You know, I I think it's great to see these kids, ironically, a week after – Kareem Abdul-Jabbar made the comment about Michael Jordan. You know, he chose commerce over conscience. I think on a college campus, that's all you have is conscience. Mm. And if it, if it hits a home, if it hits a nerve, if it hits home with you, you're going to rise up. Now, the benefit that the Missouri football players have is they are a major moneymaker. And again, right. you know, the money got everybody's attention and forced Tim Wolf and, the, and now I guess the chancellor is going to step yeah. down at the end of the year. And again, the great part of this development is it's like when, when somebody fires a college basketball coach or a college football coach. Well, the next guy has a better idea of what's important. And guess what? The administration also, they're going to you know, give them new facilities. They're going to give the assistant coaches more salary. So that next president will have the wherewithal and understanding that I better have a diversity council on campus. I better the have better some... at least the whole world will be watching. Absolutely. So if they don't, Absolutely. The, the spotlight will be on. That's how it works. And then that leads to this question. You, you said it was a, a great thing of what they did. Uh when, when folks say that, the, particularly folks who um, have been in this world, I, I always want to follow up with, does that mean you'd be okay if this happened, say, a couple times a year at different schools? Like, what if this became a regular part of the NCAA landscape where players said they were not going to play if they had a, gr- a grievance that was, say, connected to a larger campus issue? Would that be good for college sports because it would project these players as more than just meat on the field or heroes to be worshipped? It would be good for college sports. It would be good for society. There we go. But, but for society more than sports. And again, I, I, I can't emphasize enough that I think a college campus is a place of conscience. People are going to speak their, their, their mind and, and these issues are going to be discussed and, and, and there's going to be a consensus, hey, we should do this or we should do that. Look what's going on in Yale now with that professor mm-hmm. who wrote that, that email about you know, we shouldn't be offended by costumes that we find offensive. I, it's ridiculous for her to write that. 
Okay, it's ridiculous because you don't know what's going through that person's mind. But guess what? It's you also a, don't know how kids dress these days on Halloween. Yeah, it's, it's it started a great conversation on that campus, and there's going to be a consensus reaches. Hey, here's how we should conduct ourselves. Right. No, absolutely. CDP, any last words? I, I see you scribbling furiously. <laughs> so the thought of not giving you. No, 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 no. So just a few things. So the media spotlight, um, when you were saying how there would be a connection, the spotlight would be on the campus looking at the new chancellor, the new president. I'm also thinking about the role of social media because Twitter was a really big part of this movement as well. And scholars have found that, especially in sports communication, Twitter has disrupted the scene. Absolutely. Because you're able to communicate as a fan with an athlete directly. You can basically direct message anyone and they have to pay attention because it's on their timeline. They notice it media will pick up on it. But the thing that also is so interesting is that you have the athletes and you have the student activists. The student activists are not even talking to the media. And they're for reasons that, frankly, I find very understandable, openly hostile to the mainstream media and saying, we're going to make our own media because we don't trust you to tell our story. And the football players aren't talking to the media because they're on lockdown from the coach. So you've got all these frustrated members of the mainstream media because people are doing their own thing. And in an odd way, I really feel like that's part of the struggle because it's also laying down a marker to the media themselves saying, we're not going to allow you to misrepresent what we're doing. Well, there was an incident, I think, at Tennessee State. I'm not 100% sure, but my colleague pointed it out to me. There was an incident taking place. A reporter was actually in the middle of a live shot, and he turned to this group of students that came up, and the young lady just started talking, saying, no, you're not going to tell our story because last week we had 100 high school kids on campus, but where were you guys to cover that? Mm. The second something negative happened, you guys are here, you're here 24-7, you're reporting, but what about the good press? And, like, literally they could see she was taking over the interview. So they cut her off and went mm. back to studio because they just couldn't handle what she was saying. You know what? You know what it is. They couldn't handle the truth. Exactly. <laughs> this is. But they're journalists. Few good men. Ah, don't, don't get me started. <laughs> don't get me started. Paul Hewitt, you uh, coached in the NCAA finals. You've won damn near sixty percent of your games, and for some reason you're here. So thank you very much for <laughs> being you. a part Thanks of this discussion. Wake up, everybody! No more sleeping in bed. No more backward thinking, time for thinking ahead. The world has changed so very much from what it used to be. There is so much hatred, war and poverty. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. And now back to our conversation with John Legend. Now, I know you're from Ohio, uh, but I don't know where. And Ohio is big-time football country. What role... Did football, particularly college football or high school football, play in your life growing up? Oh, I grew up a big football fan. I grew up in a family that loved football and basketball. So our weekends were heavy on church and heavy on football. Mm. (laughs) I don't know which one was more important. Busy Sunday. (laughs) They were both very important. And uh, I'm a big Ohio State fan. And I root for the Bengals as well when it comes to the NFL. And uh, I actually grew up a Lakers fan. you know, I can hear the booze around the country now. But I'm clearly excited by the idea of LeBron coming back to Cleveland and wish the Cavaliers very wish them well. I just realized you're if you're an Ohio State and a Cincinnati Bengals fan, you don't really know what losing feels like, which is yeah, this has been kind an of annoying. season for the Bengals and the and the Buckeyes <laughs> so far. We were perpetually disappointed in bowl games and and championships over the years, 
and then the Bengals have been perpetually disappointing when it comes to the playoffs lately. But then Ohio State finally broke that um, after, you know, 13 years of, of, of a drought. So uh, we were pretty happy with that. And then uh, it really looks like Andy Dalton and the Bengals are, are for real this year. So I'm hoping they'll get far in the playoffs. I, I don't think they can get past New England, but if anybody has a shot, too, I think they have a shot. Now, you're a football fan. I'm a football fan. I have a seven-year-old son. He is not allowed to grow up and play football, according to every single person in my family, no matter my yeah. dreams of living his athletic glory uh, <laughs> or living my own yeah. through him. I know that, you know, it's obviously big news that you're about to become a dad. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank what, you. What are, your, what are your thoughts about your own kids in football? Well, you know, I do have thoughts about it. I have nephews that are playing right now, and it's hard not to be excited for them because they're really good. They're both, uh, you know, quick skill players, and uh, so they they would be the type that would play probably uh, wide receiver, potentially running back. But they, you know, they would be, you know, guys that would possibly get hit. You see people like Wes Welker and mm. and various uh, players out there uh, that you know, fit their kind of body types uh, and are playing the kind of positions that they would possibly play. Um, and they're really good. They're, like, among the best players in their particular grade level uh, in their community. And, and it's hard not to be excited for them to do well because you grew up, you know, watching people like them play and, and wanting them to do well. But then you also, in the back of your mind, are aware of the, the risk. And obviously – there are risks in, in a lot of things. There's risks in me driving my car. There's risks in anything. But uh, if you can control it and if you have choices, then, you know, you have to think twice about whether or not you want your kids or, or your family members to subject themselves to the potential, particularly brain trauma that we've seen happen with some players. Mm. S- switching gears a little bit, John Legend, in the time we have you, um, I-, I heard you sing, as a side note, I heard you sing Mississippi Goddamn and What's Going On as part of the, the People Speak series, yeah. uh, Howard's and Voices of People's History. And before I ask you anything, I just want I just have to know, as somebody who knew Howard's in well, I wrote a book called People's History of Sports in the United States. How did you get involved in that project? Well, they reached out to me. I had, I had said publicly that I was a fan of... Uh, the people's history of the United States, and I always uh, was inspired by Howard Zinn's work. And I think his team was aware of that and, and reached out to me about performing in Boston at that event. And uh, it was really a beautiful, beautiful event. There were some really great actors uh, performing um, spoken pieces, reading from some great, uh, you know, original source material from the 1800s and throughout American history. And uh, they asked me to read a few things, but also perform. Uh, And uh, I was able to do both, and it was really a thrilling thing to be a part of. Mother, mother, there's too many of you crying. Brother, 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 there's far too many of you dying. It's achingly beautiful, like the songs you did. And I mean, I say that as someone who lives in D.C. and worships Marvin Gaye, as we're all required to do. I'm a a huge Marvin Gaye fan, and and, uh, I think about him all the time, uh, uh, and his music and his influence on me and and what he was able to do as as an artist. Oh, you see, war is not the answer, but only love can conquer hate. You know we 
gotta find a way to bring some love in here today. Oh, picking lines. I'm sure you've been asked this a million times, but what, when um, so what's your answer when people ask you what is the role of the artist when it comes to building resistance, building um, a, a fighting movement? I mean, what, what is the role of the artist? I think I think you know we have power, we have influence, we have reach, and uh, great artists are truth tellers, and the value that they bring is not only their reach and their influence, but the be- belief from the audience that they're being authentic and being true, and so. We have a chance to use that for good, and that's what I've tried to do in my career. Uh, do you have any sports-slash-politics heroes, people who've combined those worlds of sports and politics? Yeah, well, there's quite a few. I mean, obviously, artists that have made great, beautiful music that that has been inspired by protesters and that has inspired the protesters in turn. Uh, people like um, Marvin Gaye, Stevie Wonder, Curtis Mayfield, Paul Robeson, Nina Simone. Harry Belafonte, particularly, all of those artists were aware of what was happening around them and got involved, whether it was by donating money, by actually marching, by making music that um, that inspired the movement to march on. Um, all of those artists were able to do that. And I'm, I'm leaving some people out, but those are a few of them that, that certainly have inspired me. And then athletes, I think um, I have a lot of respect for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, actually, and um and I've been reading more and more about him lately and how he's used his position over the years to really speak out and say some really interesting things. I think he's a great writer. And, you know, I grew up a Lakers fan and loving the sky hook from Kareem when they were still winning championships with him. But I had no idea how brilliant he was as a writer and as a thinker. Yeah. And uh, my Kareem factoid that I always tell folks is 1968 Olympics where Carlos and Smith raised their fist. Kareem just stayed home in solidarity with them. A lot of people don't know that. Yeah. Yeah. And he's he's been such a powerful person throughout his career and sometimes quietly. But uh, he's such an interesting, brilliant person. I was curious if you have a favorite protest song or political song, something that inspires you to make relevant well, music? We've, we've done so many. I, I did that album with The Roots, uh, Wake Up. We were trying to not only do songs that people knew, but, but do quite a few that people didn't know and to really kind of dig in the crates a bit and expose people to some, to some different stuff. Would you please write a letter one of the most powerful ones from that time period was uh, we recorded uh, I Can't Write Left-Handed by Bill Withers, um, which is a, a song about the Vietnam War, about a soldier coming home. Oh, tell the tale, tell the tale, tell the tale, the family lawyer. Trying to get a deferment for my younger brother. Bill is a veteran himself, and he's a friend of mine now, but he became a friend because he heard our version of the song and reached out to me. And uh, that's one of the more powerful recordings I've ever been a part of. If you guys check out that um, recording we did uh, with The Roots, me and, and, and The Roots, 
with uh, Captain Kirk on the guitar doing an amazing solo. And it was just one of the most powerful recordings I've ever been a part of. And uh, the only time I've ever literally cried in the studio while I was cutting vocals. Strange little man over here in Vietnam. I ain't, I ain't never seen. That's his heart, I ain't never done, done to. He done shot me in my shoulder. Um, if you had just one message for the students in Missouri, uh, as well as the football players, what would that message be? Well, I think I'm really impressed by them being willing to take a risk and use their power for something that wasn't, wasn't easy and that wasn't, wasn't necessarily going to be popular with everybody, but using that power to try to make real change. And I think it's an example for all of us especially those of us who do something that's valuable in society, like for me as an artist. But, but just think about all those athletes and, and the value that they create for the universities around the country and for the pro athletes even, uh, the value they create for those franchises, for the networks, for the NFL. It's inspiring to all of us to think about how we wield that power. Mm. John Legend, thanks so much for joining us here on the Edge of Sports podcast. Thank you. And hey, and I'll just tell you if, if you're if you're ever in DC and you want to go to Ben's Chili Bowl, please hit me up. Yeah, I will. <laughs> Thank you, Dave. No problem. Be well. Take care. Oh Lord, Lord I can't write left-handed. Oh, The news on sports and politics is so utterly packed this week, we can't even make time for the Russian doping scandal. What we do have time for is for me to do a column read where I'm going to riff on a column I wrote this week for The Nation magazine, and I know Professor CDP is going to have a reaction to it as well. So over the weekend, my email box was flooded with articles on two subjects. One was the story that the National Football League would be returning the millions it surreptitiously took from the Pentagon to fund all of the salute to the troops ceremonies that take place at NFL games. And the other was the utter bombshell on Deadspin that revealed graphic photos as well as detailed police descriptions of the abuse endured by Nicole Holder at the hands of Dallas Cowboys defensive end Greg Hardy. Look, I'm guessing you probably know my feelings on these issues, uh, if you're listening to this show, quite frankly. I mean, on the salute to the troops payola scam, it's obscene. It's obscene that our games are used as recruitment ads aimed at poor kids to fight wars overseas. It's obscene that people who actually serve come home to poverty jobs and PTSD, yet this is how the Defense Department spends its money. It's obscene that yet again it took public exposure for the NFL to find its utterly warped moral compass and do the right thing. Now, the last time they went through this tortured public relations dance, it was on the issue of video leaks of Ray Rice punching his fiance. And here's the first point of connection between these stories. The NFL under Roger Goodell's leadership can always be counted on to do the wrong thing, unless, of course, they're caught. As for the release of the Greg Hardy photos and reports, it's enraging for just a multiplicity of reasons. It's enraging that a 275-pound man could beat the living hell out of a woman and have his original conviction expunged. It's enraging that we knew what Hardy did for months, yet people, particularly, I would argue, masses of men, 
only care when they see the photos. It's enraging that the Dallas Cowboys owner, Jerry Jones, rushed to Hardy's defense in a manner that must give abusers solace across the country. And from a journalistic perspective, it's at the very least deeply concerning that we don't know whether Ms. Holder gave consent for these photos to be released and shown. And the idea that Ms. Holder is suffering now because of our mass perusal of her abuse uh, is very disturbing. But I also have to say, after much thought, I cannot find fault in Deadspin for releasing these photos. Uh, the playing and replaying of the Janae Rice video I argued a year ago was a case of re-victimization, that I thought it was just disgusting the, the way the media kept showing and re-showing her abuse on a loop. Yet this case is a little bit different than the Rice case, because Greg Hardy and the Cowboys have lied again and again about their version of events of what happened to Nicole Holder. And here is the truth in the raw. And it reveals that Greg Hardy and the Cowboys are liars, and it reveals the NFL and their new alleged crack team of domestic violence people to be a fraud. The idea that Deadspin could get these photos and the Cowboys, as they claim, could not is pure, unadulterated bull****. So here they are, two stories, one about the NFL manipulating patriotism in the name of war and the other about violence against women. Two stories that share more than a conjoined residency in the NFL's dark heart. They should remind us that militarized nationalism and sexual violence often walk hand in hand. There are also two stories about what it takes for us to see what's right in front of our eyes. Yet the greatest danger, I would argue, is in seeing these two stories that meet in the NFL as if they're just an NFL story. The NFL, without question, should be a lens to see these intertwined issues more clearly, but they can't be a scapegoat either, as if the NFL is the root cause of war and violence against women. That would be like blaming the bloated Jabba the Hutt for the evils of the empire. In the realm of patriotic manipulation, the NFL is at best one of countless tentacles. It's a $9 billion a year business. The Defense Department budget is $725 billion. And when it comes to violence against women, the rates in the U.S. military dwarf those in the National Football League. In fact, the rates in our society outpace those in the NFL. That doesn't excuse Roger Goodell, Jerry Jones, or their endless hypocrisy. They should both be run out of the league on a rail with Greg Hardy alongside them. But it should provide perspective. If we're disgusted by how the Pentagon paid pro sports for PR, if we want to truly stop violence against women, then we better set our sights higher than just the National Football League. Fight the empire, young rebels. The NFL is just Jabba the Hutt. So that's my take there on these two stories that I was literally deluged with in the last week. Greg Hardy, paid patriotism scandal. CDP, I know you have some thoughts, particularly about Hardy, and I certainly would like to hear them. I do, and I'm going to use research more so to kind of explain the points to understand where it's coming from. As opposed to me yelling and frothing, you're choosing no, more we, the research No, route. we like the frothing and okay. the yelling, but we also should balance it just a little because if we get the backlash, at least you can say somebody supported it. Okay, so Thank you. we'll go. No problem. <laughs> so the first point, scholars have found that violence is a learned behavior. So because it's a learned behavior, it's something that you're going to repeat, especially if you don't know the difference between right and wrong. And to go along with that, they also found that men are prone to have more power than women. And so because of that, violence and fighting become acceptable parts of life. So no one's going to question learned behavior. It becomes a part of your life. 
Why are we going to question you on what you're doing? But then another point, and this speaks to probably why Jerry Jones feels like he can do what he wants and say what he wants. Professional sports teams prefer to keep their troubled and abusive athletes or their players from public scrutiny. Mm. So because they do this, they're not going to get the same type of ugly looks or the nods that other people would receive that don't have that privilege of being a status athlete. And so to go along with that, there was a law article that talked about that because these players have this athlete status, they're protected somewhat, that they may exercise less self-control and then therefore feel the need to continue to act out because who's going to say anything to them? No one's going to say anything to them because of that. But I think what's more important, and this is probably the most bothersome part, is the fact that research has found that the NFL has said it doesn't enforce certain rules. It's because they say if they interfere in an attempt to discipline players, it will be considered a job that, quote, extends beyond their duties as employers. Mm. So I think that's pretty interesting that they would feel that it would be an issue. But then you look at Major League Baseball, Jose Reyes and his domestic violence issue that just popped up. And with their policy, the uh, MLB commissioner and Rob Manfred can actually he can issue discipline for just cause. He doesn't need the conviction to come through. If he feels like you cross the line, he can take action. So one thing that, that he can do is suspend you with pay but he's going to take action regardless of what's come out. And then just another point. So USA Today, the newspaper, they keep track of player arrest. And they've done this since 2000. And so since then, 89 players were arrested. And then September was could have been the first calendar month in six years that no players were arrested. However, because of an unpaid speeding ticket, that streak ended on September 30th with Doriel Beckham Green, but that is a light charge rather oh, than man. something that's hefty. Beckham Green. I know. You could have kept the record straight, but it's okay. It wasn't for something that was over the top, so that's appreciated. But it's interesting that the NFL domestic issues have not – this is not the first time they surfaced. Ray Rice wasn't the first time. Right. Scholars have found that O.J. Simpson, Warren Moon, other players have had this issue, but it's been handled the same. So what really is going on? Why well, is Greg Hardy still playing? I mean, yeah, and let's get to Greg Hardy in a second. But just to say, of course, what happened was the videotape in public relations. Um, I believe the statistic is uh, – 59 players were brought in front of Roger Goodell since he became commissioner in 2006, and they were suspended for a combined 13 games for issues of domestic violence. 59 players, 13 games. And that's not a Roger Goodell problem. That's always been the way the NFL has done business. Now, fast forward to Ray Rice. Remember, his suspension got knocked down to just two games, right. and then the video came out and all hell broke loose. What's so disturbing about Greg Hardy is that after the Rice story exploded, one thought we we're in this new zero-tolerance era, yet what we see is what many of us predicted would happen, which is Ray Rice perceived as a running back on the downside of his career. Uh, what's really the upside in signing him? Greg Hardy, a valued position, pass rusher, very good, and then all sins are forgiven. But it raises this question, and th there's a very good argument against what my gut says, but I wanted to raise it with you, that why shouldn't Greg Hardy play? He's good enough to play in the NFL. He, his record was expunged. I mean, do we really want to live in a society where people are denied their right to, to earn a wage? That's the argument. Now, I have my own feelings about that, mm -hmm. for sure. 
Um, I think the NFL can't be seen as just a typical job. I think it's got a tremendous public platform. I think the messages it sends are very powerful. And I think that when they look this slack on the issue of someone who, and this is the power of the photos, we demonstrably see, just beat the holy hell out of somebody 150 pounds lighter than him. I mean, I think the NFL doing nothing in that context is ugly. And I'll tell you something else that bothers me about Greg Hardy, and this is something that I I totally see the flaws in this argument, Mm -hmm. but I want to say it anyway. Uh, Unlike Ray Rice, he's offered no instances of public contrition, no instances of saying, like, I'm seeing a therapist. I realize that violence against women is wrong. I I think that I can do more good speaking out about it. All of the things from what you could argue is the, the Michael Vick playbook, if you will. I've had to get back in the good graces of public relations. Unlike Michael Vick, he's decided to just say, the hell with all of you, I can sack the quarterback, I'm back in there. And it's so interesting, because what I'm basically saying is, I don't care if Greg Hardy means it or not, but I want him to say the right things. And that's a flawed reasoning as well. Because what what am I, I'm asking Greg Hardy to con me so he can still play. (laughs) But there's just a part of me that, really wants people, particularly young people, to watch this and not think to themselves, wow, I mean, women are just collateral damage when it comes to winning in the National Football League. Well, it's interesting because Terry Bradshaw actually made a point, and he even told his producers that I'm going to say something that you may not like, I could be fired, and it's been great working with you. But he took a stand in basically saying it's not up to women, it's up to the men who play the sport to actually come in and say something and do something Otherwise, you're going to keep getting this cycle that just goes and goes and goes. And it's unfair to expect women who usually are not heard or understood because they're afraid to come out and say something to put the whole responsibility on them. I do think that the men do have to have a part and recognize like, hey, you know, yeah, his record was expunged. But do I really feel comfortable playing with him knowing what he did? That could have been somebody I knew, my sister, a friend, a cousin, just anyone. And I just wonder if these athletes even think if it were their mother or sister or even their daughter, would they be okay with what happened and the guy can return to work? Well, it's interesting because the Dallas Cowboys most prominent player not named Tony Romo is Jason Witten. And Jason Witten's mother uh, was an abuse survivor. And he actually has a foundation set up to deal with issues of violence against women. And this question certainly has come up. What does Jason Witten, who grew up watching his mom being beaten, think about sharing a locker room with Greg Hardy. And thus far, Jason Witten has not said a thing. Some players have said some things that are almost like the the verbal equivalent of subtweeting about Greg Hardy. But no one has just come out and straight up and said, I would not be in a locker room with this person. And there is still this kind of the equivalent of the, you know, the, 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 the thin blue line, if you will, the way cops don't rat on other cops, that football players, they're not going to go public criticizing other football players. But the problem is exactly what you said. It's not up to women to end violence against women. It's like the old expression, only men can end rape. It's like men need to actually stand up and be accountable for the behavior of other men. The point here is that this is such a bigger issue than the, than the National Football League. This is the issue, first of all, of the criminal justice system. And this is the issue also of fans, and including myself to some degree, asking the NFL to step in where the criminal justice system has failed, which, if you think about it, is kind of ludicrous. Like we're asking Roger Goodell 
to step in where the criminal justice system has failed on the issue of violence against women. It's utterly absurd when you point it out. It sounds like some bizarre satire. It sounds like a 21st century Marx Brothers movie. It doesn't work. Yet at the same time, we do have to recognize that. And I'll give you just just one example. I think we do the issue, first of all, violence against women a disservice when we talk about it as an NFL issue because, of course, not only does it exist beyond the NFL, it exists in terms of the numbers we have. And yes, the data on violence against women is very unreliable uh, because of uh, the the way the system is set up to keep women from feeling like they can come forward. Uh, But from the data we do have, it certainly does occur in the broader society to a greater degree than it does among NFL players. Um, so if you look at it as an NFL problem, it's like, why don't we look at it as, say, a, a politician's problem and look at the rates in Congress? Why don't we look at it as, as, a, as, a, as a male person column? The thing is that it's in the public eye to such a degree, it becomes the lens for how we discuss it. But it's just like we were talking about with the Missouri issue. It's like, if, but if we don't use it as a lens and instead make it an end unto itself, we do the entire issue a disservice. Like Missouri toppled a president who was unfit for his job because a whole community came together and football was part of that community. Similarly, if we're going to take on violence against women, we got to do a hell of a lot better than having zero tolerance for it in the NFL. That's not going to do it. You got to have zero tolerance for it in society. And you would like the NFL to be a thought and action leader in that regard. But I think what we're seeing is that there is such a huge gap uh, between what the NFL says and what the NFL does. And at the end of the day, public relations is their master much more than the sentiment of men and women who've been organizing around this issue for years. Now's the time when we wrap up the show with what we call the Just Stand Up Award. Other shows do something called the Just Shut Up Award, where they tell athletes who speak out about what they believe to just shut up and play. We do the opposite here on Edge of Sports. We stand up for people in the sports world who just stand up and use that hyper-exalted brought to you by Nike platform to say something about the world. The Just Stand Up Award goes to the Missouri football team for standing with student activists, standing with faculty activists, and standing with their community in demanding change on their campus. Now, I want to name some names because we speak about the football team, but I want to talk about Russell Hansborough and John Gibson, uh, Anthony Sherrills, uh, who've been active on Twitter and speaking about why they did what, he, what they did, and Jamon Moore, Ian Simon, and Charles Harris, who presented their statement um, at the school. I want to say to all of them, thank you. For standing up. Thank you for standing in a tradition and thank you for opening the eyes of everybody who reads the sports page but doesn't read the front page. We should extend the award to the faculty who decided to walk out with their students because they were also in support of what was going on so they weren't turning a blind eye. And then to those students who did camp out with the tents and did not eat, please have a meal if you have not done so already because your health is just as important as the issue for which you were fighting and willing to die for. Wow, spoken like a true faculty member all around. (laughs) Thank you so much, Christian Dotson Pearson, for appearing with us today. Thank you for having me again, Dave. Okay, and if people don't know it, her Twitter account is at ProfCDP. Correct. That is a must follow. Thank you, Dan Bloom. You can tweet me at Edge of Sports. You can email me at edgeofsports at slate.com. And you can get in touch with the show. We want to hear your reaction. We want to hear what you have to say. We want this to be as interactive as possible. We will read messages and tweets on the air should we feel them worthy. Thank you also so much to Paul Hewitt. Thank you so much, John Legend. To everybody out there in Podland, we are out of here. Peace. Peace.
What's going on?